0: On Memorial Day weekend in 2015, Edward Niedermeyer took a drive down the West Coast. Edward covers cars, and he drove from his home in Oregon to a place called Harris Ranch, California. It's roughly halfway between San Francisco and L.A.
1: Kind of in the middle of nowhere, and I spent four days sort of smelling cow poop, you know, out in the the Central Valley, uh, waiting to see if this thing would be used. This thing that Edward is referring to
0: is a battery swap. Tesla was advertising that you could drive up and swap out the empty battery in your car and get a full new one swapped in, in minutes, which would solve one of the main annoyances of driving electric cars. It takes a lot longer than a gas-powered vehicle to charge.
1: I started to talk to people, ask them if they did that drive often. Many of them did. None of them had said that Tesla had reached out to them uh, to let them use this this swap system, um, as Tesla said they had. Um, and so I asked them, you know, would you like to be able to use this? Is this something you would pay? And they, and they said, sure, you know, I'm sitting here waiting for one or two more cars in front of me. Each one of those is going to take an hour to charge and it'll take me almost an hour to charge. I'd pay almost any amount, you know, to to swap my battery and, and get going.
0: But as Edwards sat there, it became clear that Tesla was not offering what it had promised.
1: But what they did do is they brought in extra superchargers and hooked them up to diesel generators. Which was, you know, sort of this stark visual image of, you know, this company that's supposed to be not just a technological leader, but an environmental leader, um, really sort of not doing what they said that that they would do. It turned out that the swap station was actually a way for them to take advantage of um, a loophole in the California's EV uh, credit system Tesla made, we're not sure exactly, but probably at least a billion dollars uh, just by pretending to have this, this swap capability for its cars. And so, you know, from that very moment, that that pivotal first experience where I really sort of was confronted with this gap between what Tesla was saying and the narratives it was putting out there about the kind of company it is and, and what it exists to do, and then the reality on the ground.
0: That moment began to transform Edward into a Tesla skeptic. He later wrote a book about the company called *Ludicrous: the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. For a while, being bearish on Tesla was a lonely position. But these days, Edward has a lot more company because Tesla is now facing a new scandal about its car's batteries and how far they can take you. There's new evidence that the company rigged the numbers its car dashboards show drivers. Also, you know, there's Elon today on the show, how the Tesla dream was built on a mirage, and how reality might change electric cars as we know them. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. If you drive an electric car, you probably know all about range. It's essentially how far you can go without needing to charge your battery. And Tesla has long been known for having cars with the biggest range, advertising that they get more than 300 or even 400 miles on a full charge. But explosive reporting from Reuters says that Tesla had essentially been rigging the dashboard range readout in its cars for years. Drivers would see one very optimistic estimate of how many miles they had left. And then, after the battery charge dipped halfway, the readout
1: would plummet. Essentially, you know, there's sort of a real-time readout of of your range, right? And and so when you fully charge up, you know, people want to see they've got that amount of range. You could think of it almost as, as, as a slightly comparable thing where, especially in older cars, sometimes the gas gauge, it, it, it'll it'll barely move it all at all, barely move at all, barely move at all. You get to about half a tank and all of a sudden it starts moving a lot faster. And you're like,
0: oh my God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is this was kind of a thing with older cars. And with that, that was just a simple mechanical thing. There was no manipulation going on with that. But, but you can think of it in that sense where you leave home thinking you have all this range and then all of a sudden you start using it and it starts going down a lot faster. Hmm. If you imagine an automaker being able to remotely sort of change the size of your gas tank. Like, that's what we're talking about here. And I think it really shows that we're in a t- an entirely new era of car ownership. That's one in which I think where, you know, because you don't always know what's happening with all these software updates, you know, trust in that company is is really important. and And learning, you know, that Tesla's been acting this way certainly doesn't make me trust them anymore.
0: When customers called Tesla to report the range problems, Reuters says a special team based in Las Vegas diverted their requests instead. The team would tell customers, there's no problem with your car.
1: It's fine. And this is also something that Tesla has done throughout their, throughout their history is sort of uh, creating these call centers, both to, to sort of handle and divert and to manage incoming complaints, but they've also done this remotely as well. I did some reporting back in 2017 about a situation where people were experiencing sudden loss of power in their Teslas, right the, the, the drive units just stopped working and uh, while they were on the road. dangerous thing and, and, and it's the kind of defect that was is always handled by every other manufacturer, including Toyota and and, and Mercedes who were using the same dre- Tesla drivetrains at the time. They did full recalls because these are defects that affect safety. Tesla instead was calling people up. And saying, hey, our remote diagnostics say that your vehicle would benefit from some kind of upgrade or or, or whatever, something like that. And then they would basically go and and be doing a... a a stealth recall by by reaching out and managing these things, Tesla is able to do this because unlike most U.S. based auto manufacturers, they don't have a separate, independent dealer network that that services their vehicles. They do it all in house, and so they can stand up the the call center team, they can stand up the service teams, they can create these entire programs that, frankly, in in multiple occasions and in multiple ways, actually breaks the law. You know, you if you have a, a safety related defect, for example, you have to Recall that there's a reason that 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 law exists. Even if you're fixing it proactively, you still have to go through that that process. This is a, different than that situation, but similar in that you know because Tesla has the full stack all under one roof, from from sales to service uh, to customer service, uh, you know, and, and and these phone centers that they can handle this stuff and, and come up with strategies for for managing customer complaints and customer problems without a dealer sort of in the middle saying, hey, wait a second, I'm not sure what we're doing is legal here.
0: And they were, in fact, di- diverting customer calls and canceling appointments and just sort of ignoring the issue.
1: That's right. And, and you know, Tesla is one of those companies that, you know, they've managed to get as far as they have in part because of they have a very different relationship with their customer base than than other automakers do. One of the things that I found... Really fascinating, you know, in the in back in 2015, 2016, 2017, when I was reading a lot of, of Tesla forums, you know, there's this overlap between people who own the cars and people who own the stock. And what's really fascinating is, you know, on these forums, the owners would be the ones who'd be like sharing information and saying, hey, I'm having this problem, what's going on? You know, Tesla's giving me the runaround. And other owners would say, Oh, yeah, let's, you know, talk about this and figure out what's going on and hold Tesla accountable. And then you'd have the, the investor guys come in from the investor subforum and say, no. You can't spread this information. This is going to help the short sellers. You know, if you help the short sellers, you're you're helping destroy the planet, you're destroying this company that's that's here to save the planet. So there's this really kind of cultish relationship that Tesla owners have. So I don't think most car companies could do this. Like I don't think a Ford or General Motors could manage a problem this way in part because again, they don't have the they have this dealer that's sort of stuck in the middle of this customer uh, relationship, but but also they just don't have this sort of cultish relationship with their with their customers where they can, and, and Tesla does have the power to sort of say, you know, hey, even though you're sort of encountering problems, you know, bear with us, or it's not a big deal, or this is just part of the deal. And because Tesla's new, and because people love a lot of other things about Tesla, they're able to get them to go along with it.
0: I wanted to dig into some things you wrote for Slate about why the range scandal feels so significant and is so significant um tesla represents something about evs that that feels or felt viable maybe for the first time on a big scale like you could switch from a gas car to a tesla and not that much about your life would change um does it does that feel right to you like that that initial kind of flurry of excitement
1: yeah, absolutely. Tesla has defined how we think of EVs, both as consumers, but also our regulatory system and our, our incentives, right? The incentives that, that our entire policy around encouraging EVs is based on the vision that Tesla created, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always going to be a first mover advantage or whatever, right? If you're the first one to sort of define a market, you get to define that market how you want. And, you know, for Tesla, the the, the core attribute that really set them apart was the big battery. There were a lot of things going on with the marketing, you know, marketing to celebrities, there's the environmental angle. Certainly, I think now one of the biggest things was they really marketed cars that spoke to tech people and identified that people who work in tech have a lot of money and want premium cars that reflect who they are. In a lot of ways, that was a big part of what made Tesla what we know today, but embedded in all of that, the core at a technical level of all of it was the big battery. And this was why they said, you know, OK, we're starting out with expensive cars and we're going to make them cheaper over time. Right. We'll scale it. Yeah. And and like that argument was made as sort of an auto industry type argument, which which makes sense. Right. And and a lot of things. There's a lot of different kinds of consumer products and other things that start out at the high end of the market and just get cheaper over time. The problem is, is that batteries and electric car batteries and electric cars are quite different than certainly the cars that they're replacing and, and a lot of other things. To this day, EVs are still a premium product in this country, and to a large extent, it's because of the government policy. It's because government policy assumes that the bigger battery, the more viable an EV is, and so you get more consumer subsidies for bigger batteries. If if the entire incentive is just to move to EVs, and you know you don't care how long it takes or what that transition looks like, then you know that makes sense. The, the problem is is that because Tesla has defined the market and because policy has sort of followed in lockstep with, with the vision uh, around which Tesla has defined the, uh, the market, we're stuck now with an EV market that's too expensive. E- EV prices have come down about $10,000, the average transaction price in the last year, which is huge, right? We've gone from about $65,000 to about $55,000, but that's still a good $10,000 more than the average car costs. And so EVs are still very much in a premium space. And what's really troubling is that you know, sales are starting to slow because there's only so many people who can buy cars in this $60,000, dollars 100000 price point. Tesla is making money. But for everyone else who's followed into the market as Tesla's defined it, this premium two to 300-mile range, you know, kind of attractive, sexy EV market, you now have too many automakers chasing too few buyers. They're having to cut the, the, the prices of these cars to keep them moving, even though at full price they're not making money. And so Tesla has kind of created a bubble. It's a premium EV bubble. And that's okay. you know what I mean, if Tesla wanted to innovate a, an EV you know premium EV market and others want to compete with them, that's fine. We just shouldn't conflate that with a broader EV transition because those are two different things.
0: When we come back, why what Tesla does matters for everyone.
1: It's
0: no exaggeration to say that Tesla is the most influential EV company in the country. And Tesla's range estimates are a huge part of that. The company sold consumers and U.S. lawmakers a vision of electric cars that required no real change in our behavior.
1: Tesla's success has been very much predicated on the idea that we don't have to think about this. That here's this car, it just comes along, if you afford it, you just— put it in. Yes, it's a little different. you you plug it in at home instead of taking it to a gas station. but fundamentally it's it's it you don't have to think too much about it. It's a one to one swap, yeah, exactly and 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 that's the problematic part of all of this and and frankly, it's going to be difficult to get away out of it. It's very easy when someone comes along and says this is the answer and it works for the initial market. You know, it's easy to just assume this will all just keep going along. the The problem is is that we are facing a real crunch. Uh, in the uh, supply chain for the batteries it takes to make these cars. And putting 250, 300, 350, 400 miles range in every EV um, is going to dramatically affect our ability to to electrify uh, the fleet.
0: Edward argues that those big batteries and the promises of long-range drives are the wrong focus for electric cars. Instead, we should be tailoring them for a different purpose.
1: Americans drive 40 miles a day on average. That's that's a lot by you know, global standards, but it's not that much compared to what people think they need in terms of electric car range. And I think the real critical one is that the vast majority of our trips start and end at home. And so we really should be emphasizing charging at home, in apartments in particular, rather than putting them out on the freeway. When you start to go down this line of, of thinking, what you realize is that the Tesla vision basically holds the 90 to 95% of the miles that we could actually you know, like electrify quite easily with small batteries, with e-bikes, with plug-in hybrids, with things like that, and holds all of that hostage to the most extreme 5% of use cases. It's saying if we can't electrify the, the road trips and the things that are very rare but are the hardest things to do with a battery electric vehicle— that like it's not worth electrifying the 90 to 95 percent of those miles that we could do with a much, much smaller battery. people buy these big these Teslas and, and lucids and Rivians with these big batteries, thinking that they're saving the planet, and really, in a way, what they're doing is they're hoarding about 90 percent of those batteries or 50. Or, or 50- mm. To to 80% of those batteries, you know, if if instead of giving 300 miles of range to one person who uses 50 to 100, call it, on an actual regular basis, you could be taking half those batteries and putting them into, again, plug-in hybrids where you drive, you know, your 40 miles a day are all electric. And if you go beyond that, then you burn some gas, you know, or an e-bike.
0: So you're sort of imagining a world in which if you have an EV, it is for school drop-off, work commute, you know, going to the grocery store, which is what most Americans use their cars for, but not the big road trip up and down the California coast. That's
1: right, yeah. So so we've, we've fallen into a relationship with cars that is fundamentally predicated on internal combustion and gasoline. You know, gasoline is uh, incredibly energy dense. It, it fuels incredibly quickly. You know, these are its superpowers. If you're like me, I have a, a Toyota Tacoma because I love to, you know, on the weekends and when I have time off, I go out into central Oregon to the desert and I ramble around. I don't have a plan. I don't go from charger to charge. I just, I ramble. EVs, on the other hand, have a totally different super, superpower, which is that you wake up in the morning and the tank is full, right? Hmm. And no matter how, my, how big of batteries we put in these EVs and how many superchargers we put on the freeways it will never be how ha- it will never have the same superpowers as gas just as a gas vehicle no matter what you do to it it will never be able to magically fill up its tank every you know unless you have an oil well in your in your backyard or something it will never fill up its tank every night and so i think really the 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 big lie that elon musk has been selling is that these things are the same they're not the same they're two separate technologies and if we're really going to do this this transition which i think it's very important that we do that we start by accepting that they're different and then proceed from there isn't there a concern though that
0: you know seeing these as completely different entities or 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 seeing an EV as the school drop off car might discourage the kind of like wild innovation that could create something something more dramatic that really keeps changing the EV game
1: i mean look there is plenty of incentive to develop new batteries people have been you know, trying to develop new battery technology nonstop for decades you know this this never this never ends. There's always been a lot of money and a lot of you know whatever te- you know scientific prestige associated with coming up with a new battery. The problem is is that new batteries are really hard like this hmm. is why gas beat out EVs in the first place you know evs and 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 gas cars had roughly comparable market share if you go back far enough in this country, the difference is, is that battery technology stagnated with lead acid and internal combustion technology dr- improved dramatically and by the way, internal combustion engine technology continues to improve like not it will never get to the point where it can you know be zero emission, of course, which is why we need these other things, but battery technology is slow to develop and and hard to improve and I think that's one of the things that people really have to understand about this is that when you develop a new, technology that is manufacturable, whether it's an iPhone or a new kind of car or anything anything like that. You're, you're talking about scaling manufacturing, right? A internal combustion engine is a good example of this. You design the engine. You design the manufacturing system for that engine. It needs supply chain inputs, but they're, you know, aluminum and steel and things that, you know, supply chains that have existed for a century, and 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 so you can take that and you can build that factory all around the world. And each one could build hundreds of thousands of units. And you can sort of cookie cutter that and get sk- manufacturing scales. Resource extraction is sort of the fundamental input to to batteries. And so if we're going to scale battery electric vehicles, we're not talking about just designing a good battery and, and then a factory to make that battery. We have to scale up resource extraction to to a scale that we've never done before. Which is also problematic. Hugely, hugely. And and it's it's problematic in terms of all of the things that go along with resource extraction. You know, the um, environmental degradation, the damage to indigenous groups, all these things that for every kind of resource extraction exists. But it's also just slow. You know, some of these uh, lithium mining techniques, it takes 10 years to build out a, a, a proper lithium extraction facility, right? And then, and then you know, different reserves are different sizes, but it also costs different amounts to take different kinds out of the ground. So so, resource extraction, given that that that's what this entire industry is going to fundamentally, you know, pivot on now versus, you know, again, like steel and blast furnaces and and casting and stamping and all these sort of traditional forms of manufacturing, it all comes down to to batteries. and And fundamentally, the cost of electric vehicles, the cost of batteries, and therefore the cost of electric vehicles, the number one factor in all of that is how quickly and at what scale we can literally pull minerals out of the ground. That's a totally different game. Expecting industrial manufacturing, let alone high-tech style scaling, you know, of that kind of supply chain infrastructure is absurd.
0: Where does all of this leave Tesla? Because there have been a lot of high-profile issues with these cars, not just the range, but full self-driving, autopilot, etc., etc. Musk is An increasingly known and increasingly erratic commodity,
1: but people keep buying the cars. Their Q2 numbers look good. Their sales volumes continue to stay respectable. Um, They've certainly gotten bigger with with the product lineup that they have. They've gotten bigger than I think most people would have expected. However, their margins are compressing, so they're having to cut price and they're having to cut profitability uh, in order to keep the sales up. At some point, something has to give with that, and it'll either be the sales volume or the or the profit margins. Certainly, if there's trouble around full self-driving and, and autopilot in the regulatory sense, which is a whole other conversation that we can yeah. have, I think there too, it's actually another fascinating example of how Elon Musk has convinced a lot of people that the technology works a certain way when it really works completely different than, than how he portrays it. And so I think if you see government action with autopilot and full self-driving, all of a sudden their profits compress even more. And fundamentally, the problem is is that they're not developing new models fast enough uh, to to sort of keep up. The the car business is a treadmill, and they're not reinvesting as much as I think they need to be to keep new generations of products coming as demand peaks for the for the older ones. So. I think Tesla is in as tough a spot as they've been. They've been in a tough spot the entire time. Starting a new car company is one of the hardest things you can do. And it's taken fooling a lot of people about a lot of things, frankly, to, to keep this company alive and to keep it going. I think fundamentally, it's almost always been an unsustainable business. Um, and I think that fundamentally it continues to have aspects of it that still make it unsustainable. That having been said, you know, they've been through a lot and they've survived a lot and. Elon Musk is a is a escape artist extraordinaire. And so I certainly wouldn't bet against him finding some way to to keep things going. On the other hand, as has been the case, you know, literally the entire time throughout the entire history history of this company, bankruptcy could also be a matter of weeks away. You know, it always has been. Uh, I think that's the part that people have not really understood uh, if they haven't paid close attention.
0: Listening to you and listening to you describe the vision of electric vehicles that I think a lot of people have embraced, Um, you are articulating something different, something that is smaller or just kind of a a left turn from from maybe how people thought, oh, yeah, in a few years, we're going to buy an electric car. It'll be great. How can that idea translate
1: to the broader public? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's, it's one that has to be answered if we're going to sort of get things back on track. The way I think about it is that I think we need like a Fitbit for mobility. For a century, we've been sold cars with these visions of road trips and wide open deserts and canyon roads and the sun setting over the ocean and, and just freedom, right? The, the freedom of cars. We, we have to understand that that freedom thing is fundamentally tied to gas. When you need to charge up your battery, you know, where you're basing that car matters. This shift is fundamental. And I think if we don't do anything, uh, people will continue to treat electric cars the way they treat gas cars without thinking about it because through sheer force of habit. And so what we have to do is we have to help people understand what their actual mobility needs are. Not the fantasy, not the road trip, not heading off into the sunset, but like actually day in, day out, how are you using your, what are your real mobility needs and are you using a vehicle or, or, or a mode of, of, of transit that, or transportation that, that is appropriate to that? It all starts with us understanding what our actual needs are, with getting past this really ingrained habit of, of fantasizing when we buy our cars, which is why we buy trucks and SUVs, right? It's because we, we're not thinking about our regular our use cases. We're thinking about the fantasy. And I think that it's okay to, to buy cars on fantasy, but that should be your weekend car. Right? During the week when you just need to get around, you know, let's think about how we reduce our needs to that, to, to the thing that actually serves it most efficiently. And again, maybe it's maybe it's not a car at all.
0: Edward Niedermeyer, thank you so much for this conversation. It was my pleasure. Edward Niedermeyer covers the auto industry and mobility technology. He's also the author of *Ludicrous: the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. You can check out Reuters reporting on Tesla's range scandal in our show notes. Reuters says neither Tesla nor Elon Musk responded to their requests for comment. Tesla also did not respond to our request. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we are doing here, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. When you become a Slate Plus member, you get all your Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.